0: Last week, we looked at Revelation chapter 4, and that opened this heavenly scene that we see carried over into chapter 5 that we'll look at this morning. We saw John describe our Lord as like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. He said there was a rainbow like emerald circling the throne. He gave us this heavenly picture. And in chapter 5, we're still at the throne of God. And this time we're going to see a few more things start to unfold. And there's some very important background information that we'll get into that can be found in Jeremiah and Ruth. Last week I did ask you to read through Ruth. So if you did that, you probably got an idea of what we're going to talk about. Um, But we will look at that. And I also wanted to mention that chapter 4 views God as creator. And in chapter 5, we will see chapter 5 views Christ as Redeemer. So that's something you can keep in mind. Chapter 4 views God as the Creator. Chapter 5 views Christ as the Redeemer. Let's read through these first few verses in chapter 5 together. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him, Sat on the throne. So we have this picture. It's a scroll in the right hand of God. It has writing on the inside and on the outside. Um, And when we hear the word book, some of your translations may say book, we think of a codex. A codex is something that has pages that are bound together. But this would be a scroll not a book as we would think of it. Codexes didn't come around until about the second century. And this scroll that was used would have been hammered out from papyrus. Um, it was an aquatic plant that grew. And these papyrus scrolls were used at this time. And they didn't usually contain writing on the backside of them. Because when you were making them, With the production process, you'd hammer them out, and the front, the recto, as it was called, was smooth, and that was good for writing on. But the back, which was called the verso, was very rough. It was not smooth, and it was more difficult to write on that side. So usually these scrolls would just contain writing on the one recto side. But this particular scroll has writing on both sides. And we can assume that the writing on the outside of the scroll contains directions for its opening. It says, and it was sealed with seven seals. And Roman law required that a document relating to ownership be sealed with seven seals. And we see this in the wills of Augustus and Vespasian. Now I want to turn your attention to Jeremiah 32. We're going to start in verse 6, and it, it carries through all the way through verse 27, and actually past that if you want some more context. But this little passage contains an example of land being purchased for later redemption. Jeremiah is the main character of this story, and Jeremiah knew that the nation was about to be under Babylonian captivity for 70 years. But God told Jeremiah to buy a field from Hanamel. This is his uncle's son. So Hanamel comes to Jeremiah, and he asks if he wants to buy his field. Jeremiah recognizes, oh, this is exactly what God was telling me was going to happen. So I need to buy this field. But why would Jeremiah want to do this? And he actually questions God later, why did you have me do this? He's not going to personally survive that 70 years of captivity. But he does it because, one, God told him to, but also because the field could be redeemed when they came back into the land after captivity. It was an evidence that God promised them that they would return into the land after their captivity. So let's read Jeremiah 32. I'm going to start in verse 9. This is Jeremiah speaking. He says, So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle who is in Anathoth, and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. And I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses, and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open. And I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Masiah. In the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. Then I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this purchase deed, which is sealed, and this deed, which is open, the open deed containing instructions for the opening of the sealed deed, Take both these deeds and put them in an earthen vessel that they may last many days. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. So what would happen when the Israelites returned from captivity? Someone would dig up this jar with these two title deeds uh, in effect, and if they could satisfy the requirements to open the sealed one, they could open it and take possession of the land. And that's the idea that we're also seeing in Revelation 5. You see, now big picture here. When God created Adam, he gave the title deed of the earth to him. In Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31, we see God giving dominion to man. Dominion over all the birds of the air, fish of the sea, uh, everything that creeps along the earth, God gave dominion to man over. But in Genesis 3, when Adam sinned, he effectively gave up that title deed to the earth, to Satan. And today, the world is still controlled by Satan, who is called the prince of the power of the air. But when the events of Revelation 5 unfold, Jesus will be taking back this title deed to the earth. Jeremiah's title deed was over a field, over a bit of land. But this title deed we see in Revelation is the title deed. To the earth. Now let's look at our text in Revelation, chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So we're seeing a few things. We've got this scroll that's written on the inside and on the outside, the writing on the outside containing directions for its opening. The scroll is sealed with seven seals, an indication that this scroll has something to do with ownership. The angel is searching for someone worthy to open the scroll. But no one was found worthy. No man was found worthy. Not even to look at it. What are the requirements that must be met in order to open this scroll? That's the big question. What requirements must be satisfied for someone to open the scroll? And to answer this question, we're going to take a look at the book of Ruth. In the love story that unfolds over these four chapters of the book of Ruth, Boaz is seen as the Goel, that is the kinsman redeemer. And Boaz is no doubt a picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ruth is seen as his Gentile bride. She is a picture of the church. Now, there are a few laws of ancient Israel that are going to pertain to this situation in Ruth. And I've got some references for you to check those out on your own. We can throw that up on the screen for you. There's the law of gleaning, the law of marriage, and the law of redemption. And these all play into this story contained in Ruth. We're not going to get into it too far but the law of gleaning basically states that once your servants make a pass through the field um, of reaping, of harvesting, they have to leave what's left for the poor and the widowed to go through and glean for themselves. The law of leverate marriage basically says that if a husband dies, the brother of the deceased can marry his widowed wife to carry on the family line. And the law of redemption is similar, um, but it includes the bride, the land, all obligations attached to uh, the deceased. Now, there were a few requirements for someone to be a kinsman redeemer or a goel. The first is that they must be a kinsman of the one being redeemed. Now, the first requirement we notice for Boaz to redeem Ruth is his relation to her. This satisfies the requirement that her Redeemer must be kin to Ruth. The Redeemer must be able to perform the redemption. The key word there is able. Boaz was wealthy enough that he was able to purchase all that she owned, and along with the land, everything. Thus, he was able to perform the redemption. They also must be willing to perform the redemption. And this is very different and distinct from Abel. You can be able to do a lot of things, but not want to. But the Redeemer had to be willing. He must be willing to take on this widow as a bride. Um, And we'll see this closer relative of Ruth uh, Turned down the redemption offer because he was not willing to do that piece of it. And notice that Ruth had to ask Boaz to perform his duties as kinsman redeemer. She laid at his feet, and then they had this talk, and they worked some things out. But Ruth had to ask Boaz. And lastly, the kinsman redeemer must be able to assume all obligations of the beneficiary. Boaz also satisfied this requirement. He was able to take on all of the obligations attached to Ruth, which included land. Now in Revelation 5, Christ is cast in this role of kinsman redeemer, redeeming the title deed to the earth. And this is where we can clearly see that Boaz was most certainly a picture of Christ all along. And if Christ is our Goel, then we should be able to see how he fulfilled the requirements of kinsman redeemer through his time on earth. Now, remember that Ruth is his Gentile bride, which represents the church. First requirement of the Goel, to be kinsman. We see this angel here searching for someone to open the scroll. So obviously he can't open it himself as an angel, even though he's specifically described as being a strong angel. He still can't open this. The angel is searching for men who meet the requirements. A kinsman of Adam. A human would be the only kind able to fulfill the requirements of a kinsman to Adam. I want you to take note of this because it says that he searches in heaven, on earth, and under the earth to find someone. He searches for men in heaven before the time of the tribulation. And this must mean that humans are up there at this time. Christ satisfies this requirement because he was a direct descendant of Adam. He was a man. Now, the second requirement, he must be able. Jesus was able to perform his redemptive work. And even as far back as Moses' day, we can see references to Christ's ability to sustain God's wrath. This obvious example is the brass serpent in the wilderness. That's recorded in Numbers 21. And when brass is used in Scripture, it's symbolic of judgment. Brass could be heated to much higher temperatures than could gold or silver. Thus, brass was able to sustain the fire, seen as an implication of judgment. When Moses made that brass serpent in the wilderness, it symbolized Christ lifted up on the cross but we don't actually get that explanation until much much later when Jesus explains it for us in John 3:14 and 15 the imagery of the serpent can be viewed as sin serpent equals sin every sin that had been committed or would be committed was paid for by Christ, sin on a hill. God poured out the wrath that was due to us on his only son, and he, this brass serpent, was able to sustain the heat of God's wrath. An ordinary man would not be able to sustain the wrath of an almighty God. But Christ was able to perform this redemptive work. 1 Peter 2, 24 reads, him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. The next requirement of the Goel is that he is willing to perform the redemption, the redemption. Christ was also willing as well as able to perform this redemptive work. And like Boaz was willing to redeem the land and the bride, so was Christ. And he was willing to pay the price that was necessary. Though he did despise the shame of the cross, which we see in Hebrews. He placed the Father's will above his own in importance. As he was sweating great drops of blood in the garden before his crucifixion, he says, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So ultimately, Christ was willing to pay the price for our redemption. And the last requirement of this Goel is to assume all obligations attached to the redemption. In the book of Ruth, we see the nearer kinsman to Ruth pass up his opportunity to redeem both the land and Ruth herself because he didn't want to assume all of the obligation together. Um, In fact, taking Ruth as a bride would have somehow messed up his inheritance. And he refers to that in Ruth. Boaz, you know, after taking a sigh of relief that this other guy didn't want his future wife, he steps up and takes on the obligations of Kinsman Redeemer. He redeems both Ruth and the land. And if we look at Jesus, he assumed all obligations attached to our redemption. The entirety of our sin debt was placed on him all sins past and future all heaped upon the shoulder of the lamb and we see a interesting picture drawn out with this closer relative to ruth and boaz the closer relative seems to be representative of the law what the law could not redeem jesus could and that is The Gentile bride. You see, the law was able to redeem the land, you know, and I would see this as Canaan, the promised land of the Israelites. The law was able to redeem the land, but it was not able to redeem the bride. And we see this in the nearer relative. But Christ went all the way. He was willing to do whatever was necessary and he assumed all obligations attached to the redemption of his bride. Verse three, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. I want to make note here that no Christian is able, is worthy To open the scroll. He searches in heaven, on earth, and under the earth to find somebody who's good enough to open (laughs) the scroll. And he can't find anybody. Not a single one of us is going to be worthy to open this scroll. And that should take some pressure off. We can be done striving. No one is worthy but the Lamb who paid for it all. There's no way that I can be enough, and there's no way that you can be enough, but I stand on the authority of the one who is enough. The significance of this angel not being able to find anyone to open the scroll may pass us by at first, but John, in his historical context, With his experience, he knew exactly what this meant. And he knew the implications of it. And we can tell that he understood because he says, I wept much. That is, he sobbed convulsively and out loud. He says, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. John knew that this scroll was the title deed to the earth. And if no one was able to redeem it, it would consistently remain under the possession of the wicked one. And that would be a tragedy. But we see one of these elders speak up to John. In verse 5, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Now, I want you to be sensitive to something that we'll see moving forward. Whenever something about heaven is explained to John, it's explained by one of the elders. And when something about the earth, something that happens on the earth is explained to John, it's explained by an angel. Just keep that in the back of your mind. And in verse five, the elder said to John, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Before Revelation 5.5, 5, this verse, all the titles of Christ are Gentile titles of Christ. From Revelation five five. Onward, through the rest of the book, all the titles used of Jesus are Jewish in nature. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, and even a couple verses down, the Lamb. These are all Jewish titles of Jesus. Why do you think that is? I'm not going to give you an answer, but I want you to think about it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now let's look at this title, the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. The elder announces Jesus as the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. And this title of Lion speaks to his second coming in power and in glory. But John doesn't see Jesus as a lion. John says, I looked, and behold, in the midst of them all stood a lamb as though it had been slain. The elder saw Jesus as the lion. John saw him as the lamb. And it's not just any old lamb, but it's a lamb that still bears the marks Of his slaughter, a lamb as though it had been slain. And this is an obvious reference to Jesus' first coming in humility and in service. It's interesting that he still bears his wounds inflicted by men, and these are the only man made things in heaven. This is also the way that John the Baptist first introduces Jesus publicly behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world in john 129 now this other title root of david god made a covenant with david that his line his progeny would rule over the whole earth we're not just talking about israel but worldwide <sighs> And there are over 1,800 biblical references to Jesus's reign on earth. Yet much of the church still doesn't look forward to this as a reality. That's a tragedy. Over 1,800 biblical references to the earthly reign of Jesus Christ, the line of David. Isaiah 1, 11, 1, excuse me, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name, by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Romans 15, 12, referencing Isaiah. Paul writes, and again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who, rise, who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles shall hope. And in Revelation 22, 16, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in the rest of that chapter, he goes through and lists the line of Jesus through David. Luke 1.32, he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And then in the very next verse, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. I'm not going to go over the the next 1,700 something references with you, but we'll stop there. The point is, Jesus is coming again. And he will reign on the earth. This root of David is the fulfillment of God's promise to him. That his line would reign on the earth. And this is the only one who is worthy to take the scroll and to loose its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. The lion is not at odds with the lamb. They are in perfect harmony with each other. You see, Jesus as the lamb in his first coming is the reason why he can come back in judgment as the lion. Because he did purchase what was necessary. Because the sins of the world laid on his shoulders, he can judge righteously. And the Father has committed to him all judgment. Verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. I've got a graphic for you on the screen that has some references for the seven horns and the seven eyes, and we'll leave that up there for a little bit, so you can write all that down if you'd like. The seven horns are symbolic of power and honor, and horns are symbolic of power and honor throughout Scripture. The seven eyes, I'm thankful that John just spells it out for us. He says, they are the seven spirits of God who were sent out into all the earth. And in Zechariah 3, 8, and 9, Zechariah 4, 10, and Isaiah eleven two, 2, those all talk about the seven spirits of God. Now, this next half of chapter 5 is going to read like a narrative, like a story, There are a lot of events unfolding in quick succession to one another. And John is recording the order of events as he has witnessed them. So we're going to read through it, and then we'll talk about what we've just seen. Verses 8 through 14. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom, and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. What a scene that is going to be. In verse 8, it says each of them had a harp talking about the four living creatures and the 24 elders. If you remember from last week, the 24 elders is representing the church in its entirety. So every Christian and these four living creatures have a harp. And apparently, we're gifted musically. I can't wait for that. I've never had that experience before, being gifted musically, so I'm really excited to see how that feels. We'll be playing our harps, and we have golden bowls full of incense. Now, I'm not trying to paint the picture of us sitting up on a cloud strumming harps. That's not what it's going to be. But apparently, heaven is a musical place, and I'm looking forward to that. And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. way back in the tabernacle, there was a golden altar of incense, and it was located just outside the most holy place in the holy place. It was just beyond the veil that separated the two. But Aaron, who was the high priest, had to burn incense on this altar of incense in the morning. And in the evening, you can find that in Exodus 30. And here in Revelation, we see this incense tied to prayer. And this does tie up some of the loose ends concerning the altar of incense. There's no doubt that it represents prayer in some capacity. Prayer being offered up to God. And the imagery involved with the tabernacle fits well with this prayer view verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And slain here is translated from the Greek sphazo which means to butcher or to slaughter. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which we would refer to as the Septuagint or LLX or I'm sorry, LXX, the Septuagint employs this word sfazo when referring to the slaughter of the Levitical sacrifices. In this song that is sung by those who were redeemed, Jesus is again referenced as being the lamb that was slain. And this is in a Jewish context. It's using the same word that they use to describe the Levitical offerings. He is our perfect sacrifice. They continue, and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Now, just out of curiosity on my part, I want you to look in your Bible for any footnotes on this verse. And... I want you to see if there are any that say something along the lines of the most authoritative manuscripts, read them. Or, you know, the best manuscripts, read them. And it's referring to where it says, us in my new King James, and have redeemed us to God. And have made us kings and priests. And we shall reign on the earth. There's a lot of back and forth between scholars as to whether this should say us or them. And you'll notice, it's kind of funny, some of the newer translations even leave out that altogether. There's no us or them in some of the more modern translations. They're too scared to put it in there. But there is this debacle between this So, can I get a quick show of hands if your Bible has a footnote that points to them? Them? What translation do you have? Yes, me. you? Okay. So here are some nitty-gritty facts that should help you navigate this manuscript talk. Because this generally is not a problem of translation, but it's a problem of which manuscripts are used to translate. Now, we have manuscripts of Revelation in several languages, but we know that the original was written in Koine Greek, so those are going to be considered here. The Greek manuscripts should be the most important for our consideration. We have 95 Greek manuscripts that contain at least some part of Revelation in them. Here's what you'll hear from the thems. Did you know that only 23 of the 95 Greek manuscripts we have say us? This is a pretty big talking point for this viewpoint. 23 of these 95 manuscripts say us. That's a fairly low percentage if we're trying to figure out whether they say us or them. So we assume in hearing that, that the rest of them say them. That would be the natural assumption. Here's the thing. Of those 95 manuscripts, only 24 contain the fifth chapter in Revelation. They have other pieces in Revelation, but only 24 of those 95 Greek manuscripts contain chapter 5. Do you see the, the issue? 23 of the 24 manuscripts that contain chapter 5 say us. There's only one that says them, and that's Alexandrinus. Here's why that matters. You know, what's all this talk of us and thems? The thems, for lack of a better term, usually hold to the point of view of a post-tribulation rapture of the church. The us's usually hold a pre-tribulation view. Now, if the 24 elders are singing about their own redemption by the blood of Christ, it's hard to escape the fact that they represent the church and that they are in heaven before the tribulation begins. But if you can make them be singing about someone else's redemption, then you can try to keep the church out of heaven until a later time frame. So this really comes down to that issue, pre- or post-tribulation rapture. And if you want to hear more about this, I kind of skimmed the surface, but if you want to hear more, Joe Foch from Calvary, Philadelphia, goes into this issue a little deeper. And he has a lot more knowledge on these manuscripts as well. You can find his recording on their app, CC Philadelphia. Um, But the point in all of this is that the 24 elders are singing about their own redemption by the blood of Christ. They're not singing about someone else's redemption. 23 of the 24 manuscripts of chapter 5 read us. Only one of them reads them. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders The angels can't sing that verse with the elders. You have redeemed us to God. They're not part of the redeemed. The angels have not been redeemed by the blood. But they all chime in for this chorus coming up in verse 12. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. This number seems to include all three groups. This is the number of all three, the angels, the living creatures, and the elders. And let me help to kind of translate this for you. There were bukus of them. It's an innumerable multitude. Myriads on myriads. An innumerable company times an innumerable company. And then multiply that by thousands of thousands. And that's what he's really saying. He's saying, there's no way that I could actually count out all of these angels, elders, everyone. It was an innumerable company. And they were all saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom And strength and honor and glory and blessing. These are the ascriptions of praise that the angels now can offer Christ. They can't say that he's redeemed them by his blood, but they can offer these praises. Just imagine for a second, angels, as far as you can see in every direction, all with a loud voice. Proclaiming, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Have you ever been to a packed out sporting event? Maybe a Friday night football game, uh, even a pro football game, maybe a concert where the musician walks out and everyone stands up and cheers for him? All those voices together, the rumbling that it creates. You can feel it. You know, you don't even have to hear it. And that's just a few people all lifting up voices together. This scene in heaven is unimaginable. Innumerable angels with a loud voice that's resonating through heaven. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying. So now we see every creature everywhere joining in this song, blessing and honor. And glory and power be to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb forever and ever. It's interesting to me that creation sings these four ascriptions of praise. Because the number four tends to relate to the earth. We have creation on the earth singing four inscriptions of praise. And this indicates Christ's universal dominion over the world. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. And that concludes chapter 5 and this current heavenly scene. Now, from chapter 6 on through chapter 18, we see the events of the tribulation unfolding, more properly, the 70th week of Daniel. Chapters 4 and 5 detailed the heavenly scene that will unfold after the church is caught up into heaven. And I want to point out to you that there is an unspecified amount of time between the rapture of the church and the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation, uh, which starts with the opening of the first seal in chapter 6. Now, during this uh, time frame, this undetermined amount of time between the rapture and the first seal being broken, the events of these chapters 4 and 5 will transpire in heaven. Now, we don't know how long this time will be on earth, but I do tend to think that it will be fairly short. And there are a couple of reasons I think this will be a short time. The first is that chapter one points to the fact that these ha- things will happen in quick succession. It says things which must shortly take place. Once things start picking up speed. Once things start happening, and specifically the rapture of the church, other things will start falling into place quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker, like a snowball rolling down a hill, picking up mass, picking up speed. Um, That's the idea. The second reason I think this will be a short time frame is that the preserving influence the Holy Spirit will have been withdrawn from the world. And this happens when the church is taken up to heaven. The Holy Spirit now dwells in us as believers, but when we, the salt and the light of the world, are taken away, evil will begin to wax worse and worse, and it will come very quickly. And we know that evil Will be the state of the world during the tribulation. So, with the salt and the light out of the way, the preservatives, if you will, evil will begin to snowball as well. So, next week we'll break into chapter six as Jesus opens the first seals of the tribulation. And we'll also talk about how these judgments of the tribulation are structured. We see an interesting structure with the judgments. You have the seals, the trumpets, and then the bowl judgments. And each one of them is listed out. One, two, three, four, five, six. There's a a brief pause. And then the seventh judgment in each one of these series. So we'll look at that a little bit next week. We're going to close there for now, and hopefully we'll see you next time. Let's close in a word of prayer.